don't give it like a the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, architecture and eugenics. Modernist design as an orthopedic apparatus. With Fabiola Lopez Duran. Hello, everyone. Today, my guest is uh, Fabiola Lopez Duran, who is a professor of history and theory uh, of art and architecture at uh, Rice University in uh, Houston. Uh, and we will talk about architecture and eugenics. Um, hello, Fabiola. Hello. Uh, so we are. Um, yeah, your your work currently is very much about this relationship between architecture and eugenics. And you send me a text that's been particularly useful to uh, to prepare this conversation. And this text is uh, particularly centered on the work of Le Corbusier. Which, uh, which is uh, coming at a at a very interesting uh, time of debate, uh, especially in France right now, because we are we are. Uh, it's been fifty years and Le Corbusier died, and there's been three books. There's a big exhibition at the Pompidou Center, and there's been three books coming coming out uh, about um, about the relationship between Le Corbusier and fascism. But my feeling about that is we've been insisting a little bit too much about uh, Le Corbusier's person, personal uh, uh, inclination towards fascism and, and some incredible letters written, uh, anti-Semitic letter and, and all those things. But maybe the work has not been focusing enough on the work of Le Corbusier itself, which I think is... is uh, leading to much broader uh, consequences because of, of the way modernism and modernist architecture has been uh, invading the world. <laughs> and so, so that's what, that's what make, made your text that you wrote, I think, with uh, Nikki Moore, uh, particularly interesting uh, in, in how it really engages the work and its possible relationship to eugenics. So could you maybe introduce us uh, this particular aspect of your work in relationship to Le Corbusier? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, um, I see you are referring to that. Um, that's an article that was actually written initially as a talk that I presented with Nikki Moore, who is uh, one of my PhD students at Rice University. Um, that article, that talk was for a um, conference organized by my former classmate at MIT, Patrick uh, I never remember to pronounce his last name well, Highway. Um, he organized this um, conference about modernism, and I wanted to show a sort of uh, trajectory. I wanted to trace uh, Le Corbusier's ideas about um, eugenics from the 1920s until he conceived the modular. Mm. So that was a sort of experience for an independent studies that I did with Nikki that was, of course, based on my previous research, um, the research that I conducted at MIT for my PhD dissertation that was about eugenics and architecture. Um, in that thesis, I started my research here in Paris in 2006, I think, 
a, a, de, a de museo social. And what I, what I found fascinating in that moment was to realize that, that the Museo Social, there was this complicity between architecture and, and medicine, between architects and physicians. And then I realized that that complicity was very well received in Latin America, so that all these uh, architects and physicians that were working here in Paris at the beginning of the 20th century were hired by the Venezuelan elite, by the Latin American elites in different countries um, to uh, uh, implement their ideas there, scientific ideas, medical ideas, but also to develop the master plans of the most important cities in Latin America. So I'm talking, for instance, that Donat Alfred Agash went to uh, Rio to um, and design the master plan for Rio de Janeiro. Um, Forestier went to Havana and Buenos Aires. So the two master plans of 1924 and 1925 were designed by, by Forestier uh, there. Um, Leon Joseli went to Ecuador and I can keep going. But so I started there and it was really an incredible surprise to realize that that line initiated by the architects and physicians from the Museo Social was in a way uh, closed by Le Corbusier in the 1930s when he went to Rio de Janeiro for the second time and he was reading um, uh, a manifesto of, of uh, white superiority, uh, which is um, Man de Unon, uh, Man Saint-Connu, no, Saint-Connu, I think that is the, the title in French, mm-hmm. the original title in French. So, and from that moment on, I think that he really started thinking that architecture had that power, the power of transform human humans and, and to transform the body of mm-hmm. those of human beings yeah because that's that's exactly what we're talking about right is that we're uh, as I was saying we we heard a lot of critics uh, about about uh, Le Corbusier's personal uh, fascism uh, then we have another level of critics that usually insist on you know how uh, how he had uh, how he was writing about the uh, the like health and sport and the the, the sort of um, uh, training of the body, but we're talking about something f- deeper here. We're talking about uh, what he himself and I didn't know. I learned it through your through your work, through your text that he himself called orthopedics, mm-hmm. the relationship between objects mm-hmm. and, and and bodies and wow. how the bodies are. It's not the bodies that inform the object. It's the objects that that form. The bodies, right? There's a sort of uh, what uh, I mean later, but as a designer, Henry Dreyfus would call human engineering. Like exactly. The, mm-hmm. uh, so, but th- this is already before Rio, right? This is in the twenties that in he talks 20s. about uh, the orthopedics. Could could you maybe bring us back to this uh, to this uh, era to to explain? And also knowing that uh, many of the people who will listen are not necessarily architects, and so don't don't be scared to go into. Uh, uh, didactic details. <laughs> okay, okay. So yeah, that's that's exactly true. I think that we can trace these 
interest in evolutionary ideas um, in the 20s. And it was in the 20s when Le Corbusier actually objectified himself and decided to call himself Le Corbusier. And it was also in the 20s when he was working for the um, design of this unit of the, the perfect unit for living for the um, international exhibition of decorative arts here in Paris. In when he introduced a, what he called the orthopedic relationship between objects furnishing and the human. Uh, he understood that we were in, we were with an insufficient um, armor. I think that those were specifically his words. That we were born naked and without anything that really makes us to be able to live in a modern time. So he wanted really to show and to understand how we need to establish this um, connection to objects in two in in, a, in two concepts that he um, uh, defined as type needs and type objects um, through furniture, so chairs, file cabinets, desks, utilitarian accessories, etc., um, and that where that has to be designed in the service of a medical correction of the human being. Mm -hmm. So this idea of correcting the human being was already in his test that he published in L'Esprit Nouveau um, during those uh, early years of the 1920s. So immediately after that, um, he started um, traveling. So he went for the first time to Latin America and to, to the US. And I will say that between those years of the mid-1920s and the mid-1930s, his main interest was about evolutionary, evolutionary ideas in relation to architecture. And during those years, he came across the work of Alexis Carrel, that was this um, main eugenicist from France, who published a book that became a bestseller that was a manifesto of white superiority that was called Man the Unknown in, in English, but was published in, I don't know how many languages, but I think that more than 20 different languages. And he was reading that book that was, this, as I said, a manifesto of white superiority while being in Rio. And in his first um, talk, um, to architecture students in Rio de Janeiro in 1936, he clearly said that Plum, the publisher who published his last book in New York, wanted to publish a book that was equivalent to that book published by Carrel, um, but for architecture. And from that moment on, Le Corbusier started a relationship with Carrel. He really attended his lectures, started thinking about his talks in terms of architecture. He started um, uh, sending the books to Carrel because he cared about Carrel's opinion. Um, and started to be more systematic 
in the implementation of eugenics ideas into architecture. But I think that he's, he was already in that line of thoughts since the 1920s, of course, influenced by Mutitius and Adolf Laws and others, and, and placing himself in the position of the, of the evolutionary thinkers with Darwin and others. So I think that Le Corbusier was really building an ideology that was at the center of his work. What I found right now is that um, people get totally lost, I think, that in just in the personal situation of Le Corbusier and his sympathy and his collaboration with the Vichy regime, and if he was an opportunist doing that, uh, I think that that's okay, that we all know that, but what is really interesting for me, and that's what my work tries to do, is to trace how he was not just an opportunist. He was really aligned with these ideas, and he was really thinking about these ideas since the 1920s in a very clear and systematic way that arrived to, let's say, to one of the most clear expressions of this with the modular. So I found, for instance... Um, this exhibition here in Paris, uh, uh, a very interesting exhibition. I love to see many documents that I haven't seen before. I mean, there are some videos that are fantastic, but it's really um, uh, fascinating how we in architecture are always presenting architecture as this political and social blind thing, you know, that it really doesn't have anything to do with the social and political implications of the discipline. So it's always a kind of strange for me to see, not just for this exhibition on Corbu, but also there is an exhibition about Latin American architecture at the MoMA that is also completely blind, politically speaking. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and so you, you, were, you were talking about Vichy, uh, and so the, 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 all the south part of France that was uh, not occupied by the Nazis uh, uh, during the Second World War, but that was very much collaborating with them, uh, and and how um, how Le Corbusier even had like a hotel room <laughs> in mm -hmm. Vichy, like that's the first thing he did, um, and you you also evoke Darwin, which uh, uh, and uh, and you start your text by this uh, this diagram that Le Corbusier draws from Vichy. Or in a for a magazine that's been co-opted uh, by Vichy, uh, with uh, insisting on on uh, men, nature, and family, which which is really not that far from from the Vichy uh, motto, which was uh, work, uh, uh, family, and uh, patriotism. Uh, I mean the nation. Uh, so could could you tell us a little bit how how this uh, relates to Darwin's own? tree of life, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. the, the sort of diagrams, mm -hmm. Um Yeah, in 1942, in an article to present his book, the book that he was going to publish with Plum in New York, that was uh, La Maison de Somme, the, the home of man, um, in this uh, journal, uh, Le Corbusier presented a drawing of a tree, um, And, and we can say that that tree was a sort of representation of his own state doctrine. And it's, it, this is a fascinating diagram because the tree has three roots um, that 
that came from the trunk of the French state, and that is completely identified as the French state. And the left root represents the man and his immediate, immediate environment, so the region. The middle root represents the man and his social structure, so the family. And finally, the right root represents the cultivation of land beside trade and craft. So the, this triad links milieu, reproduction, and production uh, at the base of the built domain. So it's fascinating how he see the role of architecture playing a significant, um, having a, a significant role in the construction of a state that links the production and the production, the construction of capital, the reproduction of a society in a kind of very systematic and organized way, and and the milieu that is capable of doing this through the implementation of architecture. I mean, the, the implementation of architecture as a technology of eugenics. Um, in in a in a single diagram, um, I think that he was when he was draw, drawing this tree, he was really making this um, to, this to illustrate this link between man, nature, and family, all held together by the state and its executive tool that will be the built environment, and he was. By doing that, placing himself in the company of evolutionists, inserting this powerful orthopedic function where the stability of the family, the real production of the milieu, and the stability of the nation has something to do with the stability of the physical environment. Mm -hmm. And the technology for doing that was architecture. Mm -hmm. So my interest is in how architecture is implemented as a technology of eugenics and how architecture is for Corbu this discipline that will have that capacity. Mm -hmm. And you, you even quote this uh, radio broadcast that he, that he did where he says that the, the, the built environment is both uh, the cause and the remedy to de degeneration, right? With this... Uh, Again, this terminology is that uh, I guess we could put back in a historical context. I don't. Know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what what it would do if we were to do that. But degeneration is very much again a sort of a racial uh, uh, racial and medical terminology, right? It's yeah. uh, it's 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 quite interesting how he put that in, compar in yeah. immediately in relation to the built environment. Yeah. Well, I, I guess that what is behind those ideas is Lamarckian eugenics, mm. no? because the uh, generation was a main concern here in France um, that, uh, I mean, it's an obvious to read the 20 volumes of the McCourt, the McCourt family by Emile Sola that is all about the generation. And after he finished with the last one, the last novel, in which he traced the generation in this family, you know, like there are incredible diagrams mm. by Sola in which he draw even um, urban environments or architecture uh, plans in order to show the role of uh, the environment in the process of the generation of people. And he ended with um, uh, a novel that was called Fecundite, 
So through, how through the, um, uh, the puriculture, let's say the, the science that it will be the equivalent of agriculture for human beings, will be possible to transform the society into a healthy society. But these ideas are all coming from Lamarck and, 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 and the idea, the, the, the faith in the environment. Um, so, I mean, I say that it's very popular that Lamarck was um, uh, thinking that, the, for, for instance, the giraffe was... Making, uh, having this long neck because it was transformed by trying to reach the food and that transformation was possible to be inherited by following generations. So this is the same idea that is behind Lamarckian eugenics, that in difference to the eugenics, uh, the eugenics that um, was implemented in, in mainstream eugenics in England or Germany, in which they saw that the environment was not capable of doing any of these, but you know that the human being was sealed, and that was not what the only way to manipulate it was by genetic manipulation. But the kind of eugenics that was implemented in Latin America, for instance, was the Lamarckian eugenics that was based on medicine and on these ideas that the environment had that power, that environment and inheritity were the two tools in order to transform the human body. So mm -hmm. these are this is the way that architecture came to play an important role mm -hmm. in the in this ideology of progress that was eugenics in the Latin world. Mm -hmm. And obviously the, the elephant in the room of this conversation so uh, so far we haven't really addressed it yet but it's it's the fact that Uh, we're talking about adjusting the body I and mean, going uh, for eugenics and we're, we're not saying towards what yet and uh, we're, we're not talking about the, the normative body that's, that's aimed through, through those design and that's what brings us to uh, Le Corbusier's Modulor that we can maybe remind uh, uh, again non-architects uh, uh, listeners to, to what it corresponds exactly Uh, but I'm going to let you do that. But it's quite interesting to say that, the, as you say, the, the current exhibition at the Pompidou Center is completely uh, non-political, yet it, it's been completely oriented around to, to evolve around this idea of the modular. So I, I, found, I found this tension interesting. It's like the, 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 mat the, the exhibited material is probably the right one, but the discourse, the curatorial discourse behind it is just not happening at all but anyway that's that's me making a comment on the exhibition but could, could you could you introduce introduce us to the to the modular and the consequences uh, it has on uh, Le Corbusier's architecture towards this uh, eugenics yeah sure um can I just go back to sure. the 1930s because I think that there is um there is a a very particular sketch that for me was really key In, in, oriented, in orienting my own research, which is one of the sketches that he was doing while preparing for his talks in Rio de Janeiro in 1936, was um, the sketch of a human body um, that we can even claim that is more, he looks like a black man, mm -hmm. 
um, that is in the base of a series of notes. And in the top of his notes, um, Le Corbusier wrote the word Castello, then the word, the word uh, Lucio Costa, that, well, and other names of, of, um, of um, modern architects in Brazil. And then he reminds himself to buy the book by Carrel. So this is really key for me because there is that human that he wanted to transform. And the names of modern architects, the name of, the, of one of the most incredible laboratories of eugenics in the planet that was an entire mountain that was destroyed at the center of, of Rio de Janeiro for aesthetic and medical reasons. So basically they wanted to take out all these people that were not, let's say, they, they invited to the party of the celebration of the 1922 um, international exhibition that was going to portray Rio de Janeiro as a modern city. So all these people that were basically mostly blacks and poor were not really the people that they wanted uh, the visitors to see immediately after entering the, the, the Guaia de Guanabara um, um, you know, glorious entrance to mm -hmm. Rio de Janeiro. So, um, uh, Corbu was putting together in that single sketch the name of the of the main modern architects, including Lucio Costa, who later designed the Ministry of Health and Education, that was the institution in charge of eugenics policies in Brazil under the Getulio Vargas regime and the architects who also designed Brasilia that in my opinion is maybe the most bold statement of these ideas. So when he was really thinking about the connection between um, environment, eugenics and the human body he was, and Carrel, because he put, he was writing there to, to he was reminding himself to buy his book, um, and the main eugenicist of France. He was really thinking about the transformation of that man that was at the bottom of his notes. And of course, that man was a black man. So the elephant in the room mm -hmm. is that we are really here seeing a movement, a social and a biological movement that was not just pretending a perfect uh, human body uh, without diseases or whatever, but a white body. And the modular is very clear on that because it's not just that it's a white... Well, I mean, I, I, I have to be careful with what I'm saying right now because there are not so clear evidence about this thing. But I think that we can actually, it's very clear that these are, there are issues of race and gender that are completely um, embedded in this idea of creating a canon that was a man of six something feet tall. Yeah, um, 183 centimeters. Exactly. Um, exactly, I'm trying to think, because I prefer to think in centimeters, but, you know, I'm getting used to this <laughs> American system of doing everything with inches. It's probably and, six foot one or something like that. Mm -hmm. 
and that was in a way the antidote that he found at the late night of the at the late at the late of the late 1940s to everything that was going on in that moment and that needs this order this element of order to make us to be just a kind of homogeneous um, society so it's, it was part of this process of thinking that we need order and progress and architecture can do that through changing the environment to change the the, the human body mm-hmm. to, to, to maybe s- summarize it maybe a little bit too ab- abruptly but mm-hmm. it's uh, if we if we try to say it in just one sentence, it's it's, it's a belief that if you if you design architecture for bodies that are supposed to be 183 centimeters, architecture will make non 183 centimeters bodies into 183 centimeters body. Right? It's like they, uh, I mean, I'm I'm sitting right now on a oddly oddly too tall chair, <laughs> which makes it a little bit awkward. I feel like a um, a tennis referee somehow, but so maybe this chair is 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 uh, influencing my body to become taller than what it is right now, right? Absolutely, mm. absolutely. There was this um, strange faith um, that that architecture had the power, but it's true that architecture had a lot of power, and I think that us we really need to be conscious about that, mm. and that's what I keep. Um, and that's why I keep doing the kind of research that I do, because I think that there are many social and political and economic implications in what, what we do. For instance, let's go from the description that you have done about your chair to an entire city mm-hmm. that was designed from zero, such as Brasilia, in which I haven't been in a city more segregated from the beginning than Brasilia. Mm-hmm. In a city that is really not for humans, I mean, I know that many people will be absolutely irritated by what I'm saying, mm-hmm. but it's really one, I think that Brazil is a tragedy, it's really a tragedy. It's a tragedy in the sense of any beauty of those wonderful buildings is capable to erase for me the tragedy that that city is from the moment in which she, it was designed segregating people from the very beginning. So, Brasilia was not completely occupied and, and it was already segregated. Mm-hmm. And this is, this, is, this is a consequence of a way of thinking and a way of implementing architecture and a way of like, really uh, thinking that modernism works. And that modernity brings, and that modernity comes in this kind of m- movement of bodies out of the important spaces of a new city. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe if, uh, I I actually highly recommend the listening of the of the conversations that I had with Antonella Borges at at Brasilia itself because that was exactly talking about that and it was fascinating to listen to her. Uh, but that, that's that's Brasilia is a very interesting example because um, uh, it involves another uh, 
master of modernist architecture, which is uh, Oscar Niemeyer. And as much as we can, that, that, that's also why I feel that the attacks on Le Corbusier's personal political uh, uh, situation are obviously important, but also not crucial, because if we take Niemeyer, he was part of the Communist Party. Mm. He fled from the dictatorship uh, uh, for the... He was exiled for the entire length of the dictatorship between uh, 1964 and 1985. Uh, and, and so we, we, cannot, we cannot really accuse him directly of being uh, uh, of being uh, uh, accomplice with uh, with uh, this sort of uh, ideology however we I mean you through your work you try to to show that even even someone with uh, with this kind of uh, political uh, mm -hmm. uh, course bad, yeah. still still has a very much a very much uh, similar, uh, ambition for architecture, right? Absolutely. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's that's a very important point because when you, when we arrive to the simplification of things, like if people in the, in the right are bad mm -hmm. and people in the left are good, um, we, we get into stereotypes again. So eugenics, for instance, was a movement that was supported by everyone from the left to the right, I mean, all the political spectrum. There was, I mean, if you go historically and you go into the archive and you see really who were really uh, against these policies, were very few, very, very, but very few people. Most of the people from the left to the right were supporting these ideas. For instance, I'm, I mean, you're mentioning a... a Niemeyer, but also Lucio Costa, mm -hmm. who, let's say that Lucio Costa was always behind um, Niemeyer, and we know more about Niemeyer than about Lucio Costa, but Lucio Costa was, um, had a very racist position from very early in his life, um, and how you can think about this when you think about Lucio Costa, I mean, you don't, because you really think that Lucio Costa was moved by all these novel um, ideas of justice and democracy and um, social interest. But no, there were many of these ideas that were totally uh, assimilated by uh, these architects and that were coming through their architecture. For instance, um, Costa, in an article that he wrote in 1928, was pretty explicit um, between the connection um, about the connection between architecture and race, and, and make a very racist link. And he said um, something like, "I'm pessimistic about architecture and urbanism in general. All architecture is a question of race." And he said, when our nation is that exotic thing that we see on the streets, our architecture will inevitably be an exotic thing. And he claimed that it's not that um, half dozen of people who travel and dress on Rue de la Paix in Paris, but that anonymous crowd that takes um, trains from Central Station and, and Leopoldina. And he said, and I'm going to quote him exactly, 
People with sickly faces who shame us everywhere. What can we expect from people like this? Everything is a function of race. If the breed is good and the government is good, the architecture will be good. Talk, discuss, gesticulate. Our basic problem is selective immigration. The rest will change on its own. That's the end of the quote. Mm-hmm. So it's really amazing. I think that he, he, I think that part of his support also to the neo-colonial, to the, the neo-colonial architecture as the that became the mandatory architecture to represent Brazil abroad from the 1920s until 1939. That changed when. Brazil went to the to the international exhibition in New York, was part of of this um, idea that Costa Costa intended for his eugenic syllogism of breed begetting good government begetting good architecture to also work in reverse. So that if there is good architecture, we will be, we will have good people, you mm. know, like this incredible power of of architecture over people, and that was the period in which he was supporting the the physician who was the main promoter of neo-colonial architecture as the national style to represent Brazil in any other places. Mm-hmm. And it's really fascinating how that lasted to the end of the 1930s. You know, it was part of this homogenizing discourse um, in which architecture was, in a way, representing that kind of like white human being that was the 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 scientific element that they they wanted to reach with their population through selective immigration, through um, urban planning, through architecture. Mm-hmm. And th- that's probably where you see that eugenics is very much, uh, I would say, re- redundant in the fact that you are trying to provide an environment that will lead to a body that itself already benefited from the environment it was in right so like uh if if we if we think of uh, something like disability for example i mean we uh, uh clearly a disability does not exist in a sense it's only a disability relative to an environment that has been made for other bodies than mm-hmm, the one mm-hmm. that we are considering right so somehow eugenics is is taking this relativity and making it an objectivity and saying that the, the disabled body is the one that is, uh, that is uh, scientifically, objectively uh, uh, obsolete, obsolete and, uh, and uh, we should make an environment that always favor the uh, abled bodies. So there is a sort of redundancy, a loop like that, that you can never really... Uh, uh, that you can never really escape, but that's that's fed by a sort of rhetoric like that, right? Absolutely, mm. yeah. There is, uh, it's 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 a kind of naive and, but but it was completely aligned to the ideas of the moment. You know that um, there was this um, 
need of get rid of any ornamentation because it was completely connected to primitivism and anything that has to do with backwardness and primitive cultures or anything like this. But also in terms of how of homogenization. So modernity appears here as a kind of um, uh, process of normalization of human bodies and buildings. So everything has to be in a particular way and in a homogeneous way. And that ideal was the white man and modern architecture, no? So, in a way, we went from, I mean, talking in the case of Brazil, that is, um, I mean, I can talk about this also in Argentina and Cuba or Mexico um, or other countries in Latin America, but in the case of Brazil, you see how in the neocolonial architecture that was the style that they decided for representing Brazil abroad until 1939, that has all this ornament and in a way in we can consider that in a way was anti-modernist and pro-Iberian but it was really what represents the European part of the Brazilian that they wanted to uh, achieve mm-hmm. while transforming the others um, and I can tell you about many different uh, ex- uh, Examples or emblems of this uh, ideology and this process of transformation from top down, you know, that was coming from the government through the elites, through the population. Mm-hmm. And maybe as a final comment, uh, we can we can look at what for, I mean. We've been from the twenties to the sixties in this sort of uh, modernist ideology, but what what follows that actually is a sort of uh, is a sort of um, uh, I mean it's it's making it's making more uh, it's considering architecture as as not as not as powerful as it was originally thought and like in some sort of statements that oh we tried to cure society with architecture and we realized that it was a mistake so now we're going to do neutral non-political architecture and that's a little bit what we've been saying in the last 30 years uh, and more and more I think there there is a push for like um, towards an architecture that has the power that uh, are, that the modernists were thinking in it but except that it's probably a power that uh, that's precisely what we need to struggle against it's it's not so much the power we need to we need to uh, uh, I mean, when, whenever, when it, just like in politics, it's like when, when something claims to be saving or some sort of messianic claim, like as the modernist architecture was claiming, then we need to be very, very careful about that. And, and I think there's maybe a, uh, an increasing of awareness for, for this, this dangerous role for architecture, right? Yeah, I think that you are mentioning the right word. Uh, I think that is that we need to be aware of this history. We need to be aware of the clinical agenda that modern architecture had from its origins. Um, and I think that all this just this awareness, this consciousness is the only one that can make us more critical 
and as practitioners, as architects, more capable of really responding to human needs in a more uh, realistic way so that we are less inflated by the power that we think our discipline has and our, um, digamos, the product of our work. I'm, I'm right now talking as a practitioner. I was trained as an architect initially, although I decided at some point that I prefer to think about architecture than um, to make architecture. But um, as an academic, uh, as a scholar, as a, as a professor, I'm very interested in the education of architects and in the way that they can really see the social and political implications of their work. And I think that the main thing has to do with this consciousness about the power uh, that architecture has and also the limitations that architecture has. For instance, I think that right now we are in a completely similar situation that happened at the beginning of the 20th century with eugenics. We are experiencing something similar right now with this sort of um, sustainable mania. So in which is this incredible movement supported by everyone. So neither, um, I mean, the fight against poverty or hunger in the world had been able to get so much economic and political support as, sustain, as sustainability. But when we talk about sustainability in architecture, we get into a kind of very naive idea that we will be able really to do something. And based on a kind of pre-modern notion of nature, you know, like if oh, everything that we learn from Darwin and others, that we will never be able to have an harmonic relationship with nature, will change. No, we will never be able to have an harmonic relationship with nature. So our relationship with nature will be always one of conflict. I'm, I'm not saying that there is not global warming. I'm not saying what the extreme right people in the U.S. are claiming. I, I, actually, we are going to face a big problem when we will have millions of people displaced because of global warming, because we will be having all this melting of of glaciers that will bring water over cities and of course those cities are going to, I mean the affected ones are going to be the, the poorest but what I'm saying is that we really need to be very conscious about these limitations that architecture has and about the power that architecture has mm -hmm. and I think that in that in the in in this in the movement between these two possibilities of power 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 and lack of power we have to find a better way to use architecture in a more conscious way in terms of what it does for the human life of people because i mean we are working for humans this is not about insects you know or and I think that post-humanism is helping a little bit of that, with that you know like really making us to think le in a less anthropocentric way and with less inflation about ourselves as human beings and ourselves as architects and about mm -hmm. our profession as 
this powerful, powerful thing capable of doing everything. Well, Fabiola, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me in your uh, weeks of uh, research in Paris. And, uh, and uh, I think uh, the next conversation uh, with Stéphanie Dadour will be particularly interesting as a sort of uh, dialogue around those topics. So thank you very much. Thank you. I'm looking forward to, re to, to hear that interview. And thank you very much for this opportunity, Leopold. Thank, thank you. Thank you.